Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Born into wealth and taking office after the disputed election of 2000, George W. Bush was elected as a peacetime president. Soon after taking office, however, the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, transformed his low-risk tenure of office into one of war and conquest. Although he tallied the highest approval rating in presidential history in the days following the attacks, he would leave office with the lowest public support in modern history. His actions were controversial, and his election was contentious, but only after leaving office did his vision for a free and democratic world finally begin to emerge. On this episode, we discuss George W. Bush. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 4 of the series, we're discussing Game Changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, appearances, and events. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. One of the great things about this season is that I feel like I've been, I've been in more communication with you, the listener, than ever before, not only debating issues and topics we discuss here on the show, but taking your feedback and actually making episodes into them. One of the things I found is that people are much more likely to listen to episodes Whenever they choose the topic more than just whatever I pick off the top of my head. I mean, I do my best to select the the topics I feel are most appropriate, but, you know, this is a discussion, this is a conversation, after all. I got an interesting message, however, in an email uh, from a man named Derek from New York State. And he asked that I just call him that, so that's why I'm not going into more detail, so you don't maybe go looking for him. But he recommended a historical topic to me, which... I instantly balked at for a couple reasons, which we'll talk about. But the more I thought about it, the more drawn to it I really was. Because it's not only an interesting topic, it's a challenge. And it lets us talk about some serious historical discipline uh, in that way. So who am I talking about? I'm talking about, and obviously you know this by looking at the title of the episode, uh, our 43rd President of the United States, George Walker Bush. George W. Now, why are we talking about George W. Bush? Is he a game changer? I would say yes. Is he controversial? Certainly, like any political figure is in the United States. But one thing I can promise you by looking at this episode, and by the time we get to the end, you'll see this, is that we won't have a really clear answer on George W. Bush. In fact, we might pose a lot more questions than actually providing answers. One of the issues we have as historians to deal with and there's really no good answer for this, is drawing a line between political science and history. I mean, when does something become history? At what point 
can we look at it objectively as much as possible and make a definitive statement on a person like George W. Bush. He was President of the United States from 2001 to 2009. That's only six years ago at the time of the recording today. I mean, at what point can we separate ourselves from the narrative and look at what he did, what he stood for, and what the end results were, and make a definitive historical statement? That's a, that's a tall task for anyone. But for us, especially as historians, I mean, where does George W. Bush rank amongst the great presidents of all time? Many people, as soon as he left office, ranked him at the very bottom. I'm talking like the bottom five, and there's only been 44 to this point. Others had him in the mid-range. I mean, in reality, if you're commander-in-chief, you really just want to be above that 22 threshold. You want to be in the top half of presidents rather than the bottom half. Because let's face it, 1, 2, and 3 are pretty well locked up with Abraham Lincoln, FDR, and George Washington. But where does George W. Bush come in? And when can we accurately and fairly make that determination? I mean, there's big questions about Bush. And the biggest one is that what or how did his decisions affect the world? Did they work out or did they not? The reality is we haven't seen the final outcome yet. We don't know how his policies are going to change the world. Now, we see the changes in action, but we don't know the end result. If you would have asked me this question a year ago, maybe more, I would have given you a different answer than today. And I'm sure in a year from now, that might change too. I mean, think about this. When George W. Bush left office, when he left, January 2009, he had an approval rating, that's what the American people think of him, that was the lowest ever recorded. It was as low as 27%. That means just over one out of four Americans actually thought he was doing a good job. That's it. I mean, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. The reality is when you're a president, you want to fall in the, the 40s anyway, because 50% is like a miracle. But he left office with a 27% approval rating. There was one point in his presidency, get this, when his approval rating was upwards of 92%. That, by the way, is the highest ever recorded in modern statistical analysis for approval rating of a president. So how can a man in just eight years, go from having the highest ever recorded to the lowest ever recorded. I mean, that's an enigma. That's a person that, as historians, we are going to have a really hard time nailing down. So this is the way I want you to think of George W. Bush. We're going to talk about his presidency in its entirety, um, touching on issues, focusing on others more. I really want to focus on his foreign policy in terms of changing the world, being a game changer. But I want you to keep an open mind. Right now, this is uh, June of 2015 when I'm recording this. I saw this week that George W. Bush had an approval rating almost 60%. That's right now, 2015, six years after leaving office. 60%. Pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. So, what I'm saying is, you want to aim high, you want to have a future career that's promising, be a former president. Because people love former presidents. But again, this is an enigma. And it's one that I think, midway through the season, it'll be an interesting exercise in history and debate and politics. What I will ask is that, as much as possible, put your partisan politics aside for this episode. 
Don't feel like you have to love Bush because you are a Republican like he was. Don't feel like you have to hate Bush because you are a Democrat like he wasn't. I mean, you're always going to have your political opinions. I can't tell you to get rid of those. It's not possible. But put your partisanship aside. And let's look at what the man did, uh, the world in which he lived in, and, and really the changes that we're seeing. So a couple things about George W. Bush. George W. Bush, when you see him, is going to be wearing cowboy boots. Uh, it went to Disney World, very famous in the Hall of Presidents. They had some of George W. Bush's cowboy boots with the presidential seal on the side. In Texas, I'm sure they eat that up. But the reality is, and one thing Bush didn't advertise, was that he was born in Connecticut. Now, there's not many places you can get that are much further than Texas, than Connecticut. But he was raised in Midland, Texas, so I guess he's an honorary Texan in that regard. Uh, but Bush, you have to understand, doesn't come out of nowhere. Bush comes from a long uh, political lineage in American history. I mean, we're going to have another Bush, Jeb Bush running for office in 2016 for the presidency. You could theoretically, in a 30-year period, have three people named Bush, all direct descendants of one another in office. That's like a, almost uh, Napoleonic France or something, but um, it could happen. It could happen. So this is a timely discussion as well. But, but the Bush family has a long political uh, dynastic um, uh, uh, presence in American history. Prescott Bush was a long-time senator from Connecticut, really going from the 1920s and 30s onward. I mean, this is a person that's well-connected, very wealthy, and very powerful. It makes sense that the son of Prescott Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, would be a major political power player as well. This is the father of, of W, we'll say. Uh, he's the former director of the CIA, He's the former vice president of the United States, and he even works his way to president of the United States from 19, uh, 1989 to 1993. So George W. Bush doesn't come out of nowhere. He's born into wealth. He's born into status. Unlike many of the quote-unquote game changers we've talked about, he doesn't come from humble beginnings, not by a long shot. But that isn't necessarily a knock on him as much as people want to make it that in, in the modern political discourse. I mean, FDR came from a very wealthy family. He had a lot of money in a time in the Depression when most people didn't. But that didn't hurt him. Good politicians know how to make that work for them. So W's born in Connecticut. He's raised in Texas. His childhood is spent in one boarding school after another. And these are not just like minor boarding schools. These are some of the finest schools available in America at the time. Again, there's schools that the average person, person of a middle income, could never attend. These are schools that cater to the super wealthy. Again, it's where he comes from. Not a knock on him, but it is something that I think he does very well uh, in terms of hiding later on in his presidency when he's building his persona, what he's, uh, what he's trying to uh, give the American people as far as who he is. He attends uh, from the ages of roughly 15 to 18, a very exclusive boarding school in New England, Massachusetts. Uh, so he does leave Texas at that point. And then he goes on to, like most of us, Yale for four years, 1964 and 1968. Yes, he's a male cheerleader. Uh, yes, he's a member of the uh, Skull and Bone Society. The Skull and Bone Society, they want to play it up to be very exclusive and very mysterious. It's really a fraternity for really wealthy kids. That's what it is. Um, there's not much of a bar to reach to get into it in terms of intelligence other than how fat your wallet is. 
But there's all that people like to play into. I mean, that's all, you know, sensational. Uh, that plays really well in movies, but let's keep it where it is. It's not that big a deal. Now, after college, and he does get a history degree, mind you, uh, with a C average, uh, he goes on to the uh, National Guard, uh, Texas National Guard, uh, and he successfully keeps the Viet Cong out of Dallas. Uh, but that's fine. All military service is honorable. That's not really what we're worried about. I mean, I want to give you some background on Bush, uh, but I'd much rather have you, again, ensconced in the man when he's important, because he's not important at that point. He's not important after his military service whenever he tries to run oil companies and doesn't do so successfully. He's not necessarily important for us when he runs for the seat in the House of Representatives and loses. He's not even important for us whenever he becomes governor of Texas, arguably one of the most powerful governors in the country in 1995. We really don't care about George W. Bush until we get to the year 2000. Now, there has been, uh, and again, I'm very hesitant about calling this history because we're still seeing how it all plays out. But there has been a great book written in the last few years. I mean, I bought it the day it came out because I knew it would be good by a man named Peter Baker. The book is called Days of Fire. And what it is is a big, fat, objective analysis of George Bush's tenure of office. The cover is a picture of him, and a man will talk about his vice president, maybe the most powerful vice president in history in terms of influence, Dick Cheney. But Days of Fire, I can't recommend it enough. Because you just can't find a book on Bush that is not either a leftist hit piece or a right-wing revision of history. I mean, you can't find it. We're living in the age. We all had opinions of Bush when he was president, plus or minus, and we're going to carry that with us and leave it to people in the future to write about Bush. That can be more objective. I mean, I can write a book about James Buchanan or uh, Herbert Hoover because I didn't know the man. I have no objective, subjective feelings about the man. I have no personal animosity toward him. So you can do that. I mean, realistically, in the, in the grand scheme of presidential history, we're really just getting to about Nixon. People always ask me, Brady, where do you rank George Bush? Where do you rank Barack Obama? And I have to laugh at them because we can't make that determination. I mean, we're literally just ranking Nixon in terms of really seeing how his policies changed the world. So we can't offer that kind of answer to George W. Bush, but we can review what he does and, and why I think it's, it's going to be important. But in the year 2000, governor of Texas, major, major powerful position in this country, makes you an instant front runner for the presidency of the United States. From 1996 to 2000, William Jefferson Clinton, a Democrat, has been in office now for eight years. He's leaving office. His vice president, Al Gore of Tennessee, is going to run to replace him. And economic times are good. And it seems like by all accounts, uh, Al Gore could and should roll into the White House. I mean, it's happened many, many times before. But this Bush is interesting because he runs at a time when the American people are very open-minded. What do I mean by that? The year 2000 is an age that many of us can't even really remember as far as the attitudes of it. But I want you to think about what it was. It was a time of economic prosperity, it was a time of great hope for the future, but it also was not a time of war. It was a time of peace. Now, that, not, that might not sound very important to you, but I really want you to think about it. Again, I teach at the university level. I have students in my classroom who are 18, 19, 
They literally cannot remember a time when we were not, as a country, at war. We've been at war with soldiers on the ground since 2001. They live in an age of war, and it's all they've ever known. I mean, there are people born today, like my son, for example, who's known nothing but war. You have 14-year-olds right now, 14-year-olds, who have known nothing but endless war in this country. They've never known peace. And although that sounds like, as adults, something we can deal with, for them, it's a fact of life, and it alters their perception of the world. I'm not talking about going through airport scanners. I'm not talking about the Patriot Act and reading your emails. We'll get into that. I'm talking about the way you view this planet is fundamentally different. And it was different in 2000 when George W. Bush was elected. Bush was a peacetime president. Something we can't even fathom at this point. And peacetime presidents can do a lot of things. They can promote new social agendas. They can talk about changing the American society. They don't have to talk about changing the world. That's what I'm saying. They don't have to talk about issues that are going to affect millions of people in other countries. They can focus in on things we care about here. And whenever George W. Bush ran, he did that. He talked about changing Social Security uh, to an investment system. He talked about changing Medicare and Medicaid to a voucher system. I mean, these were ideas that people were listening to, that people were receptive to. He talked about changing public education. He talked about uh, a constitutional amendment to outlaw same-sex marriage. I mean, again, these are things that were actually being debated because we literally had nothing else to care about in the broader spectrum of the world. Now, George W. Bush will be elected president in the year 2000, one of the few times in American history where the person who gets more votes actually loses. Now, we have an electoral college system. I'm not here to debate that. I think the system is outmoded at this point. But I want you to think about that. If you come from another planet and you see here's a democracy and people are going to vote, the person who got less votes wins. George W. Bush got less votes than Al Gore in total, but the Electoral College system of uh, delegating votes uh, gave Bush the victory. Again, I'm not here to rehash that. If you're familiar with it, you remember the deep animosities that emerged. But it's one of those things you have to shake your head at. I mean, the person who gets more votes loses. Take the partisanship out of it. Say it was a Democrat that won, if you think I'm bashing Republicans or vice versa. But just think about that system. The world is watching us. We are the city on a hill. And the person who gets less votes wins. Might not seem like a big deal at the time, as far as the turning point of the world, but look at what happens next. Who knows what an Al Gore presidency looks like. But at any rate, George Bush takes over, and this is the important thing, as a peacetime president. He's got a lot on his table. He's a personable guy. He's a am- amicable man. He's the only president in history to have an MBA. How about that? Uh, people like to knock Bush for being, you know, infantile or sophomoric or, or dumb or something like that. But he has that to his credit. And he takes over at a time when that occurs. Now, everything changes for us in our world on September 11th, 2001. I mean, whenever that day happens, Bush himself is reading a book called My Pet Goat to a group of children in Florida. That's the most important thing the president has to do on that day. Uh, Pretty wild. Pretty wild. But again, his life and his docket is going to change in the future. But I want you to understand that. I want you to understand what exactly he had to deal with. 
One of my favorite stories, and I should have included this earlier, but we'll still throw it in now, is whenever Bush is crafting his political campaign. I mean, the book I just mentioned, Peter Baker's Days of Fire, illustrates this really well. But one of the people that was well-connected in politics of that day, Republican politics, was Dick Cheney, a former member of the House of Representatives, so uh, influential in, in Bush's father's cabinet in a number of positions. Uh, Dick Cheney is given the job because he's trusted by the Bush family of selecting a vice president to run with George W. Bush. I mean, he's given millions of dollars to run a search committee, to go through every possible candidate. Millions of dollars paid to him to go through every possible candidate and find the person who best complements George W. Bush. When it's all said and done, who does he pick? You've got to love this. Himself. They pay him millions of dollars, and he picks himself. That takes some serious chutzpah, right? I mean, that's that's a legit move. Uh, that's an OG move, you could say. But Dick Cheney becomes vice president. One of those great stories, I think. But at any rate, George W. Bush, September 11th, 2001, uh, a group of radical Islamists called Al-Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden, attacked this country, changed the world forever. The response by Bush is an interesting one. And I think it's one we have to really dig into and not be afraid of it. It is just something we have to deal with. When we look at where the attacks on 9-11 came from, the obvious place, Bush knew this, U.S. intelligence knew this, was Afghanistan. Why? In the 1980s, Afghanistan was attempted to be taken over by uh, Russians, by the Soviets. And one of the things we did in the 1980s was arm the rebels to fight off the Soviets, much in the same way that the Soviets armed rebels to fight us in Vietnam. It was looked at as payback for Vietnam, and the people of Afghanistan won. But there's a lot of problems with that as we move forward, because the government that was taken out in Afghanistan was replaced by something far more dangerous than what was there, but we didn't care at the time, because we beat the Russians. That would change on September 11th. The group that takes over Afghanistan in the 1990s, is called the Taliban. And the Taliban uh, placed a radical interpretation of Islam over the country. And they ruled it as an Islamic emirate. One of the things they did there, in the institution of what we call Sharia law, was put in place things that never existed in Afghanistan before. I mean, if you look at pictures of Afghanistan in the 70s, in cities like Kabul, you'll see discos, you'll see women with very modern haircuts. I wasn't alive in the 70s, but it looks like that 70s show. That's my experience with it. But now women are covered in head-to-toe forcibly by law. That tradition never existed in Afghanistan. And that sort of change allows a group like Al-Qaeda, a criminal organization, to take hold in Afghanistan and set up shop with impunity. So in Bush's mind, the logical people to punish for 9-11 was the government of Afghanistan itself, the Taliban. Because even if they didn't participate in 9-11, they certainly aided and abetted this criminal organization led by Osama bin Laden. That's the beginning of the war in Afghanistan. We sweep in as the United States, and you take out the existing government, the Taliban. You put in your own government. They put in charge a man named Hamid Karzai. What has Bush just done? He's not only punished the people he believes to be responsible for 9-11, but he's done something else. And it's something that I really want to key on for this episode. Something we don't think about enough. 
As a historian, it's all I can think about. He begins a process called nation-building. I mean, Bush doesn't just go into Afghanistan to punish the Taliban. That happens pretty easily in terms of getting them out of power. But he goes in with an agenda of replacing them with an American-style government. A government based on freedom, fraternity, liberalism, democracy, people having the right to vote. They keep bringing up this image, as the war in Afghanistan is going on, of Afghanistan being a place in the Dark Ages. A place where people live in a way they've lived for hundreds of years. And it's our job, the American job, to bring them into the 21st century, like us. I mean, this is going far beyond simply uh, attacking a country for attacking you. It goes far beyond retaliation. This is nation-building. And it's something that Bush talked about a lot at the time, which his emerging critics thought was really nothing more than hot air. The idea of Bush's perfect world, and to do this in the Middle East, is pretty bold, uh, if not effective, so we'll talk about that, is to basically plant a flag of democracy in the Middle East. Now, Afghanistan's not in Middle East, it's in Central Asia, but in the minds of most Americans today, I bet they would tell you in their perception it is. But the idea is, if you put a democracy in the region, people will see it. They'll see lives change for the better, like they changed in America, and they'll demand it. And the infection of freedom and liberalism and democracy will spread throughout the region, and we'll live in a more perfect world. Afghanistan was Bush's blueprint for that. Because he said, look, in a matter of almost, uh, what, three months, we've taken out a radical government, We've replaced it with a democratic government with people voting, and we've done it. Keep in mind, in 2015, we're still in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is America's longest war. But I want you to remember that goal, that vision, spreading democracy. Because it sounds really good when Bush says it at the time, but nobody at the time who was a critic of Bush believed it would ever work. Keep that in mind. 2002 goes by. New developments emerge. One of the most important is that people within George W. Bush's administration begin to believe that there's an opportunity in other parts of the Middle East to spread democracy as well, and maybe gain a measure of revenge for a previous debacle uh, about 15 years earlier, and uh, give ourselves a permanent foothold in the region. I'm talking about Iraq. Now, you have to understand Bush's uh, immediate uh, brain trust to understand Iraq, but people like Dick Cheney, his vice president, people like Donald Rumsfeld, his secretary of defense, were all involved in previous administrations that tried to, uh, basically that went to war in Iraq. We call it uh, Desert Storm. Uh, Saddam Hussein invaded neighboring Kuwait. Kuwait was our ally, so we defended him. So there's a lingering animosity, I think to say the least, between people in Bush's administration and the government of Iraq, Saddam Hussein's regime. These are the same people that work for Bush. Donald Rumsfeld uh, is Secretary of Defense at the time, and he was instrumental in that first Gulf War. By the way, think about this. Just this past week, Donald Rumsfeld came out and said he always had reservations about the Iraq War. He didn't think it was a good idea in 2003 and 2004. He spoke up, he went along with it, but he never liked it. That's a pretty major change. And it goes to show why as historians, we can't necessarily nail this down just yet. 
because people in his own administration, Bush's own brain trust, are now starting to turn on him, whereas a year or two ago they never would have. But at any rate, why would we go to war in Iraq? Why? Well, there's a lot of debate about it, and there's a lot of reasons for it, but the one that the Bush administration chooses to pursue is based on intelligence, uh, that's information gathered by our own CIA and, and our allies, that Saddam Hussein is trying to procure weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons. Uh, and that's our reason for going in, because if he gets them, the assumed information is he'll use them on us. And the Bush administration starts to build a very elaborate and a very urgent case to do so. Now, looking back, what's the problem? The problem is there's no evidence that, you're, that Saddam Hussein ever had weapons of mass destruction. There's no evidence that he was ever trying to procure weapons of mass destruction. Just not there. And at the time, people were saying that. It wasn't like that's the information Bush had and that's what he went with. I mean, there were legitimate voices in the international community that said, there's no evidence that Saddam Hussein's making weapons of mass destruction, and to go in after him because of that would be unjust. I mean, it's this notion of a just war. But that was the intention of Bush. Again, weapons or not, he believed the world was safer without Saddam Hussein. And I really believe, he's never said that, but I really believe at the end of the day, that's what he was thinking. I mean, he probably knew the information about weapons of mass destruction were sketchy. Let's hope so. Let's hope he didn't know outright that they didn't exist. But probably at the end of the day, he thought, whether they're there or not, the world would be safer without him. So in 2003, we begin our invasion of Iraq. The Iraq War is set to begin, and it will last 10 years. 10 years. And the things being said about the Iraq War to the American people, again, in hindsight, uh, are, are horribly misguided when you consider the amount of Americans who died in that country. One death is a tragedy. You're talking about uh, thousands of Americans lose their lives. Things were said like, the invasion of Iraq will be fast and easy. The invasion of Iraq will be very cheap. In fact, we'll make money on it. Because the amount of money we make from the oil fields in Iraq will easily pay for the war itself. I mean, it was, it was you know, you don't want to use this word too much because it's a heavy word, but it was hubris. It was almost a sense of arrogance that these people cannot compete with us. And they're right. I mean, in a matter of a month, Saddam Hussein's regime is gone. And everything's coming up aces for the Bush administration. But the problem is the aftermath, the things we didn't think about, that will make this war last another, say, 10 years. I mean, it's a very challenging place. One of the things that always amazes me, and again, this is why we have to wait. We're only at Nixon as far as real, honest, historical analysis not even at Reagan, not even at Bush the first, is that Dick Cheney, whenever he was in the Bush administration in the early 90s, he was asked after the Gulf War, whenever we defeated Saddam Hussein but didn't take him out of power, should we have taken Saddam out when we had the chance? And he said absolutely not. And the reason he said not was because Iraq, without a person like Saddam Hussein to hold it together, a place that's ethnically diverse, religiously diverse, racially diverse, would fly to pieces. He said the Kurds in the north would go one direction, the Sunnis in the, in the west would go another, the Shia in the east would go another, the country would fall apart and be a spiral of civil war. That's basically what Dick Cheney said. And he was right. I mean, you never like to agree with a character uh, who's been associated with someone like Darth Vader, right? 
Um, not that I feel the way that people have said that, but he was right. Somewhere in the next 10 years, he changes his mind. And that gets us into Iraq. It gets us into Iraq. And that exactly what Dick Cheney said would happen does happen. I'm not a person who says George W. Bush is a fool. I don't believe it. I'm not a person who says Dick Cheney uh, is evil or nefarious because I don't believe it. I believe these people were very intelligent and they knew what they were doing, but they didn't foresee what would happen in Iraq. So during the Iraq War, and again, we don't necessarily have to revisit the events of it, Bush takes a lot of heat. A lot of things go wrong in Iraq early on. A lot of radical groups emerge. A lot of mistakes are made that make America look bad. Guantanamo Bay, this prison encampment is formed. And again, these are all things that occur as tremors or aftershocks of the original invasion of Iraq. And Bush in 2004 has to defend that record. Now again, the politics of it are pretty easy. Uh, you associate the war with patriotism. You associate being anti-war with anti-American. It's been used for, for literally hundreds of years uh, in the Western world, certainly always in American history. Uh, and you run your presidential campaign that way, and that's what Bush did. In 2004, he defeated John Kerry, a senator from Massachusetts and future Secretary of State, and he gets a second term. The 04 election in America was all about the Iraq War. And unlike his first time, Bush won. He had 50% of the vote. He wins. So clearly there was a sense, and I can even remember speaking with people who weren't necessarily political, that voted for Bush. And their reasoning was, and I like to see why people vote, you know, and what their reasons are and who they vote for. Their reasons were uh, that they didn't believe in a time of war we should change presidents. And I think that's also been very true in American history. The 1864 election with Abraham Lincoln in World War II with FDR. I mean, these are very real things. War has that unifying effect on America. Don't forget, after 9-11, the day after 9-11, uh, the week that followed 9-11, George W. Bush gives a speech. His approval rating is 92%. We mentioned that. People were rallying around the president. Partisanship did not matter. But here we are in Iraq. The flag of democracy is planted. Saddam Hussein is top. He's ultimately hanged and executed. And you have a president in Iraq. Uh, democratically elected. Bush thinks his job is done. But of course, the war still has to come. Sectarian violence tears Iraq apart. Sunnis killing Shia, vice versa. Our soldiers are caught in the middle of it. British, American, Canadians, so on. It's a very nasty, difficult war. And again, we don't have to revisit it. It's very painful for many of us. But I just want to give a big picture of it. But this gets us to the main point, the main crux of why Bush is a game changer. He says he wants to plant the flag of democracy in the region, in the Middle East, and watch it grow naturally. And we all snicker at him. Yeah, right. You can't change that place. 2005 rolls around. The war continues. 2006. 2007. Bush talks about pretty, something pretty radical. A surge of troops. I mean, people are saying, bring our soldiers home. He puts in a few hundred thousand more. He believed it was necessary. And 2008 rolls around, 2009, it seems to be working. There's a democratic government in Iraq. There is still some sectarian violence. But the people of Iraq can vote. They might not always get what they want, but they are voting. And you start to see these new elements emerge. Bush leaves office, 2009. Later that year and into 2010, a new movement occurs. We call the Arab Spring. 
It begins in Tunisia, but it quickly spreads into Libya and Egypt. This idea that people are rising up, overthrowing military dictators, and instilling democracy of their own, largely because, I would argue, the, the democracy in Iraq was functioning. And Bush was right, in hindsight. Look at that. 2008, 2010, uh, 11, 12, we keep going. Democracy is beginning to spread. Now, democracy is really hard. I want to separate that right away. We look at these countries today that have new democracies or are fighting for democracies, and we see people dying, we see terrorism, we see people being killed, and we say to ourselves, why can't they just vote? Why can't they just get it the way we do? But I will say, again, democracy is very difficult. Democracy has growing pains to make it very light. Um, a lot of people fight a lot of wars of revolution based on a lot of promises. One of them is that you finally get the government you want. But the reality is you don't. The government that you get is the one the majority of people want, not always you. And you get angry about it. People are put in the power who were never in power before. And when they lose elections, sometimes they don't leave. So how do you get them out? Well, guns, violence, money, that's how you get them out. The thing is, in our country, in the United States, in Britain, in Canada, whenever we look at a democracy, we know our vote matters. We know if we lose this time, we'll get them next time. Because our vote matters. Because we've had 200 years plus to see it work. These people haven't had that. They vote and nothing changes. People don't leave office. Dictators stay in power. So for them, a vote doesn't carry weight, but guns and money carry weight. And these are the problems. Early on in American history, we had our own rebellions. The Whiskey Rebellion. Shays Rebellion. I mean, look these things up. They're real. These are growing pains. Give them time. Give them a chance. They'll work themselves out. But it won't happen overnight. So with all that being said, if you would have asked me three or four years ago how I felt about George W. Bush, I would have felt pretty good about it. I mean, the man had a vision for the world that during his own presidency didn't necessarily pan out. Think of it like an investment in war. But after, you saw the flowers of democracy beginning to bloom all over the Middle East, just as, by the way, he predicted. I felt really good about Bush. I felt really high on George W. Bush at that point. Um, it was hard to see at the time. Sometimes it seemed like he was the only person that did. But it seemed to work out. Now fast forward to 2013. We began a policy in this country, and it was one that was the Bush policy, of eliminating dictators whenever possible and supporting democracy whenever possible. We did it with Saddam Hussein. Barack Obama will do it to Libya with Muammar Gaddafi. He does it in Egypt as well. Anywhere you have people willing to fight for their right to vote, we should support them. But the problem is... We don't necessarily know what's going to replace those dictators. And this is the problem we're seeing in a lot of parts of the world. Radical groups are taking over that we did not anticipate. Again, they want a government of the people, by the people, for the people. We don't know who those people are. And we don't know who we're helping. So all over the world, we begin taking out dictators and just allowing the country to be you know, replenished. A vacuum is created. People refill it. thing is, we don't know who refills it. So how do I feel about the Bush policy now? Well, I'm very different now than I was in, say, 2011 or 2012, just as I felt differently about it in 2005 and 2006. 
I mean, this is why you can't judge Bush yet on a historical basis, because we don't know how it all plays out. We know what Richard Nixon's policies did and how they changed the world. And I would argue that Nixon's actually looking a lot better now that historians are really digging into his accomplishments and his policies, rather than letting their own politics dictate who he was. I have no opinion of Richard Nixon. I wasn't alive in his presidency. I mean, that's a problem. You have to give yourself some space. Um, fortunately for me, I have the insight to do it, naturally. But at any rate, uh, Bush is a conundrum. He's a conundrum. I mean, when you, when you go to Africa, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, and you ask about George W. Bush, one of the things you'll find is that people are really pleased, for the most part, with George W. Bush. Uh, a former student of mine was from Tanzania. I asked him uh, about George W. Bush. He was actually very fond of him. George W. Bush gave more aid to African nations than any other president before him. A lot of people don't know that. For a lot of Bush voters, that's probably not something they really, really support, so he didn't advertise it necessarily, but he did it. I mean, it was taxpayer money, but he did it. Bush did care deeply about that continent. Uh, and again, he gave more money than anyone else. All of it was based on this spreading of the American virtue of democracy. But the problem is, it doesn't always happen the way we anticipate. Democracy needs to be a natural thing. But it doesn't always work. Uh, at least not quietly. Now again, I'm not saying what Bush did was wrong. I'm not saying what he did was right. What I'm saying is, we don't know how it all plays out. Now, hopefully, you've gotten from me by now that I'm a very politically neutral person. Uh, I know the smell comes from both sides. I've seen all these games and tricks before. But I want you to think about, whenever people talk about modern presidents, where they rank, and they say, oh, he's the worst president in history. There's a person on my, on my Facebook. Here we go. Uh, the question was, who's the worst president in the history of the country? And without a doubt, in a second, she answered Barack Obama. And I have to laugh at that. Because how can you tell? His presidency's not even over. I mean, we don't know how this all plays out. You can't rank really any president before Ronald Reagan yet. Maybe 10, 20 years you can't, but not yet. With any degree of certainty or expertise. So anytime you see a person ranking Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or even George Herbert Walker Bush, anytime you see them ranking them with authority, they have none. I mean, they may have some good reasons, but we don't know how it played out yet. We just don't. And you have to understand that's a big, big part of it. A lot of people don't know this about Barack Obama. Think of this. People who are really hawkish on war. At one point, Barack Obama was fighting four wars simultaneously. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and in Uganda, a secret war, to a degree. A lot of people don't know that Barack Obama has um, forcibly removed more illegal aliens from this country than any other president before him. Think about that. He's the deporter-in-chief to many Latin communities in America. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't understand that even though their domestic policies are very different what they do at home, the Bush doctrine, the Bush foreign policy, and the Obama foreign policy are virtually the same. And whoever wins in 2016, whether it be Hillary or Jeb, if he's who runs for the Republicans, it's going to be the same too. That's something that only a historian can really see. I mean, these policies haven't changed much. We're fighting wars with drones. Barack Obama has overseen the killing of American citizens uh, working in terrorist groups without the benefit of trial. 
These are all continuations of Bush policies. So don't fool yourselves into believing they're that different. But you have to step away from it. And for most of us, we can't do that. We need time. That's what's always on historian's side. Give it time. See how it plays out. So think about George W. Bush. Again, he, at one point in his presidency, has a 92% approval rating, the highest for any president ever. He leaves office with the lowest of, ever of 27%. Now he's in the mid-50s, which is pretty good, all things considered. I mean, that's an enigma, politically, historically. But think about it, and think about how we treat history. We have to give ourselves time to see how it plays out. I had fun this episode. I hope it didn't make anyone too angry. I'd like to say that I'll get to everybody eventually, though. If you are mad at me, just wait. What goes around comes around. Everybody will be angry at me at least once. But hopefully at least one time you shake your head and say, yeah, I think Brady's on to something. I had fun this episode. Thank you to Derek from New York for promoting it. Uh, let us talk a little bit about history, about the discipline of history, how we treat history more than the events themselves. As always, visit the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Visit the uh, Twitter page, at Brady Kreitzer, or search Wartime Podcast. Let us know who you want to see. Let us know what the future holds for Wartime Season 4. I'm having a blast. I hope you are, too. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.